This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Humans are not intended to decline. Decline is hugely painful because happiness comes from progress. Mm. Unhappiness well comes said. from regress. Arthur Brooks, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. What a joy to be with you. Long time viewer, first time guest. I seriously doubt this will be the last time. Your book, Strength to Strength, blew me away. Thank it you. was one of those where I actually got emotional reading the book because as I was telling you before we started rolling, I've spent a long time haunted by the idea that genius is a young man's game. Mm. And that ties into my first question, which is why do so many people feel lost and unhappy and what can they do about it? Mm. People feel lost and unhappy is basically part of what it means to be human. And there's, a, there's an irony in the, having the big brains that we do. We developed a, a very large human brain over the past 40 million years for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it's the, it's, it gives us a, it's our genetic advantage that we could say. It gives us help. It's our survival. We're not fast. You know, we're not very good climbers. You know, we don't have a lot of hair on our bodies, but we got big, these got these big prefrontal cortex of the brain. The problem with that is that we can understand ourselves. We're the only species, as far as we know, that knows that, you know, Tom knows he's going to die. Mm. For example, you can understand the nature of your own existence, but you, you can't actually make your own existence work in a fundamentally different way. And so knowing yourself, the, the essence of consciousness is one that, that gives you incredible transcendental information, but at the same time, it programs in a whole lot of misery. So for, for example, you know, we have a tendency to, to our, our genetic proclivities force us to chase money and power and admiration and pleasure because those are the things that help you pass on your genes. You get more animal skins and, and flints and buffalo jerky in your cave and you're going to have more mates basically. Yep. And so mother nature wants you to do that, mm. but it's not going to make you happy. And you think that you want to be happy. The big prefrontal cortex says, I want to be happy because you're so conscious but the things that will help you pass on your genes are not the things that are going to make you happy. Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. And that's why it's so much more work. If, it, if you live by, if it feels good, do it. You're going to be a, you're going to be a mess. That's so it comes weird. Down to. Yeah. That's so true. Mm. So I had a realization a long time ago. I'm very grateful that this happened early. It was, of course, born of misery. But I became so profoundly unhappy chasing money. I used to show up every mm. day saying, I am here to get rich. And that provided me a lot of energy. So as a child of the 80s, growing up in Tacoma. Mm. So, and I really grew up on the 
edge of Tacoma. It's probably more accurate, even though my address really was Tacoma, it's more accurate to say I grew up in Puyallup. Yeah, Puyallup, so, where the fair was. Oh, yes. Where the Western Washington State Fair, now the Washington State that, Fair. That is yeah. all accurate. And I, it felt almost rural. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I was living in the middle of nowhere. And John Hughes Films showed me sort of this upper middle class Chicago suburb and I was obsessed with getting a big house and so I used to tell everybody I'm gonna get rich I'm gonna get rich and my family was like and I had friends that like and I could literally walk to a trailer park it was like that Mm -hmm. kind of part of Tacoma and so my family who were all sort of blue collar just thought that was hilarious and they're like yeah right and but that I was really obsessed, and yeah. so I um, were you a good gradu- student? Were you smart? I was, but I was cheating. So I was uh, really I did very well in high school from cheating, and then in college, literally from cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I was charming. Yeah. So I could get away with murder. So you're incredibly was, clever. Ooh, that's interesting. My identity is not that of someone who is clever. So. It was very much somebody who was charming. So I could uh-huh. make people laugh. Yeah. And so I could get away with things. So whether that was asking my friends to let me literally take the test off of their desk and put it on mine so I could show my work. Right. But of course, I was showing their work. <laughs> uh, but when I got to college, and I'm not even sure what gave me this insight, but I was like, I'm going to be spending a lot of money taking on a lot of debt. I should actually learn what I'm here to learn. Hmm. So I set a mantra to myself, sink or swim, A or F. I won't cheat, not even once. And so, and I ended up doing very well. In fact, I did better in college than I did in high school. Were you happy in college? I was, I was. It, when I graduated though, I was like, I'll never go back. Uh-huh. I'm not one of those people that was like, oh, I'm gonna get a master's and then a PhD. I was like, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> but it was, it was film, so it was amazing. Yeah, and you were living by the dictates of your own integrity. You were a man fully alive. Yes. You were not shading the truth. Very true. He's very important. And this is what's, you know, this is, there's, there's a famous speech by, you know, and an, an, I can't remember who it was, the guy who went on to become the president of the University of Texas, who gave, who became famous because he gave a, an, uh, 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 a commencement speech that was about make your bed. If you want to actually get your life on track, start mm-hmm. by making your bed. What that was, was uh, to ask people to become men and women of integrity. And that means even when nobody's looking at your bed, make your bed because you're a person of integrity. You went to college and you said to yourself, I'm going to be a person of integrity. I am not going to do that thing because Mm -hmm. that thing is not the right thing. And in so doing, you ordered your mind in a different way. It's really interesting. So I wish that my life was like a straight trajectory after that, but it becomes the darkest period of my life becomes right after college. Mm. When I feel lost, I feel hopeless, I have no sense of how I'm gonna put things together. That was a really scary time because when you don't feel that you can affect the change that you want, it really, for me, any, well, let's go back to what you said at the beginning. So I call that the directives of evolution. So mm. if you think of AI, AI has to be given instructions. You right. have to want a high score or you right. have to want to stay within the lanes of your car, or whatever. and humans as nature's AI need directives. And so, like right. you said, get a mate, that's definitely one of them. And man, I really hope at some point later in the conversation after we've really gone into your book, we get to the fact that people are 30% less likely to get laid now, which is absolutely fucking terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have the solution for greater happiness on college campuses. Really? <laughs> it's more love. Yeah? Now, yeah. what do you mean by that though? Well, I mean actually more relationships, more romantic relationships. 
this would actually solve a lot of the misery on college campuses today, actually. Is, I mean, what were you trying to do in college? You probably wanted to fall in love, right? No. Oh, uh, no. So I, I didn't. So I had a girlfriend at uh-huh. the very beginning of college, like the first few weeks, uh. who I'd met in high school. Right. And I broke up with her and re- decided that to get into film school, I had to really buckle down. And I wasn't going to date. I wasn't going to party. I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't right. going to do drugs. And so I effectively locked myself in a room for four years mm. to get good at filmmaking. Mm. So it was a very a different, different experience path. Yeah. than a lot of people. But now I want to I want to get people back to your book because it is absolutely life changing. So I would show up every day trying to get rich. That right. was my whole shtick as an entrepreneur. Yep. And then because I wanted to build a studio. Right. Became profoundly unhappy pursuing that. And the lesson that I ultimately ended up learning was that all that matters in life is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Hmm. And so meaning and purpose matter. Right. And so I had better figure out that money wasn't going to bring me happiness. I was living the cliche. And so I needed to attach meaning and purpose to what I was doing. How did you figure that out? That money was not going to bring you happiness. So So on paper, I was worth more money than I'd ever been worth. So I was making more than I'd ever made. I was making like maybe 80, 85,000, something like that, which Uh for me, that was at the time, that was a lot of money. And on paper, I was worth about $2 million. Uh So I was like, okay, theoretically, and paper money is very different than real money. But on paper, I was worth millions of dollars and uh-huh. I was still profoundly unhappy. So and like, did you well, think, what did you think if I'm getting, it's like, when I'll see your, your limbic system of your brain is saying, Tom, go for the money, then you'll be happy. So what did you imagine was going to happen to you if you had a whole bunch of money that would actually make you happy? Or did you actually form uh, an image at all? You just thought that if I have more money, I'm going to mysteriously be happy. Yes. Then once I wasn't, I asked myself maybe the right question, which but is why? what did, yeah, what did I think was going to happen? And I realized that I thought I would feel about myself the way that I felt about other people when that had money when I looked at them. Ah, uh, yes. And I admired them. Okay, so comes I thought I would social comparison. myself. Got it. And you would actually, so social comparison led you to the admiration of other people who had been successful. So therefore, you would have that a sort of an admiration of yourself. Yes. And that self-admiration would have been a, the genesis of your, of your newfound happiness on the yes. basis of your money. And if I were as able to articulate that to myself as you were just now, I I'm could have saved myself a lot of struggle. <laughs> but um, I couldn't either at 22. But yeah, yeah, was disastrous. Yes. So, but thankfully, I figured that out. And so, reading your book really began to bring home this idea that there are two different types of intelligence. And so at the time, I'm haunted by this idea. Genius is a young man's game. I feel like a really late bloomer. I end up spending all this time chasing money. Not I take this huge break from pursuing my passion and building that skill set. So now I really feel like I'm behind the eight ball. And my whole life has felt like that. And reading your book and the whole punchline of there's these two grand movements in your life. And if you understand them, then you really can avoid this decline in misery. Right. You open your book with a story that I will never forget. And when I put the book down, I was like running around the office, like telling anybody who would listen to that story, if you don't mind, yeah, walk people through the airplane. 10 years ago, I was the president of a think tank in Washington, DC. And I was having these profoundly disturbing thoughts. Am I on the right track? Where does this lead? What is my goal? But you're really successful at this point. Yeah. I mean... 
successful for you know for entrepreneurs in Southern California? You know, what does successful mean? To be the president of a think tank in Washington D.C., maybe not so much. But everybody's got a dream. It's a great country, isn't it? And I was the president of a, of a big, prominent think tank in Washington, D.C., and I was in my late 40s. So I was more or less the same age that you are right now. Mm. I was looking at my life saying, okay, buddy, what's the end game? And look, I had done research. I'm a social scientist. I do work on human behavior. And I had never really trained these tools on myself. And I, I was really disturbed by this because I didn't actually see what the future could actually bring that would be better or I would be happier. And as I was kind of going through this, I was doing what I always did, which is basically fly around and ask people for money. I was a nonprofit organization. I had to raise $50 million a year. And I was giving 175 speeches a year, which is super fun. I love Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like running for the Senate and never getting elected, basically, which is, you know, for running for the Senate, that's probably the best thing. So you don't have to be a senator. And as I was thinking about this, kind of an existential crisis, you know, what am I, what path am I on? What am I supposed to do? I mean, some of that was evident. I was, I have a family. I'm, I'm in love with my wife. I, I, I love my kids. But I didn't have an understanding of the, the course of my life. I mean, my religious life is figured out, but I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. What is Arthur Brooks supposed to be doing such that I can be happier as a person? And frankly, I wasn't very happy for lots of reasons that anybody can understand. I mean, and... And I heard a conversation behind me on a plane one night that changed my entire direction. It was a couple and I could, <clears throat> it was nighttime. It was like about 11 o'clock at night and I, so it was dark. And so people were doing what people do on airplanes at 11 o'clock at night. You know, they're drinking or they're, or they're watching a movie or they're sleeping. But I could hear the couple talking and I could tell it was a man and a woman. I could tell by their voices that they were elderly, clearly old. <clears throat> And I suppose that they were probably married based on their conversation. I couldn't quite make out the husband's words because he was sort of mumbling. Mm. But the wife's voice was very penetrating. It was coming through the chairs. And she's, he mumbles and he, she, she says, oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. And then he mumbles some more. And she says, it's not true that nobody remembers you. It's not true that nobody appreciates you anymore. And I'm thinking, this is a guy who, holy cow, he's not, he's not, he's not a big shot. He's not an entrepreneur. He's not, you know, he's not somebody who lived up to his own expectations. He got the, he got the experience or the education or the job that he wanted. And now life is kind of over and he's disappointed. And that makes sense or it made sense to me. Because, look, if you're a big shot, then you're going to die happy. Huh. And the lights go on at the end of the flight, an hour later or so. And I'm kind of curious. It's not prurient interest. But, look, you know, this is my laboratory as a social scientist. Mm -hmm. It is an overheard conversation, perhaps. And, and so I turn around and it's one of the most famous men in the world. This is somebody who's going to do 10 times as much with his life as I ever am. He's rich. He's famous. He's universally admired. He's not controversial for stuff that he did many, many years ago. And I thought to myself, my whole model's wrong. The problem that I have, the direction that I'm going is incorrect because my model of, of, of satisfaction is wrong. Here's the model the world tells you. Here's the, the limbic system of your brain, the ancient part of your brain that was extant a million years ago, and all of marketing and entertainment, which is a, a, a distributed digital limbic system, says work hard, make money, be successful, be admired, be envied, bank it, die happy. And it's wrong. And, and you know, in your heart, it's wrong. Because you're always asking yourself, hey, Tom, what have you done for me lately? 
That's what your mind is asking you. Mm. It's not good enough that you founded a company a long time ago and it made a bunch of money. It's not good enough. We, we need to excel. We need to achieve. We need to create value. That's how we're created as people. And this guy was blowing away the, the world's theory of happiness, of satisfaction. And I said to myself, I don't want You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need and Impact Theory's own chief financial 
financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. I'll be explaining to my wife, Esther, on a plane 30 years from now, 40 years from now, I might as well be dead. And so I set myself to crack the code. What can I do? And by the way, the data are very clear that the people who have the earliest success, the mind-blowing success, mm. they're the most likely to be unsatisfied with their lives at the end of their lives. The story that you tell about Darwin was unnerving. He could have been the man on the plane. Charles Darwin, who is on anybody's list of the three greatest scientists of all time, he was the talk of the town. His name rings through the annals of history, man. He's a hero. This is, I think I may have been even more struck by the Darwin confession yeah. than the guy Many, the plane. many people who we revere today, who had early astonishing success, they died unhappy. But we don't record that. We record their success, mm -hmm. not the unhappiness with their life later on. Charles Darwin had his greatest successes starting when he was 27 years old. We all know that he visited the Galapagos Islands on the, on the voyage of the Beagle, which is a five-year sailing voyage around the world to collect plants and animals and send them back to England. He was getting quite famous in his absence, but when he got back, he drops this intellectual atomic bomb, which is the ideas that led to his theory of natural selection, aka evolution. And for 30 years, I mean, he was, I mean, he was rich, he was famous, he was the man. But then his progress stopped. It stopped because he didn't have the mathematical ability to keep up with his own research. His research passed him by, technically. And there was, a, there was actually an advance that he needed that today we call genetics that he couldn't understand. It was written in German. He didn't study German. He was a bad student. He didn't do his mathematics homework. He never learned very much about statistics. And so the result was that he was left in the dust, which happens to people in their 40s and at most their early 50s based on their early success. Mm -hmm. And he spent the last 20 years of his life complaining about the disappointing, I mean, he wrote 11 books after that point, but they're all sort of derivative. They're like straw. And he said, that, oh, I don't have the energy to do any work that I really find satisfying to his friends. And you know, he died disappointed. He died sad. The great, maybe the greatest naturalist of all time died sad. He could have been the man on the plane. And this is not what the world tells you. The world says, bust your pick. Get as, as early as you can, get bet 10,000 hours, man. Kill it, kill it, bank it, you know? And if, if, if so, what? Right, you know, the, the sine qua non of happiness excellence, retire at 40. Well, how many people do you know who've done that, who've actually gotten happier, mm. who retired at 40? I know none. The point is that's not how human endeavor actually works. And so we need a better model. And I saw that, I did the research and I said, time to build a better model that actually describes the dynamics of human experience that actually digs into what actually brings us happiness. And that's what my research is about. That's why I'm dedicating the rest of my life to exploring. All right. So to put a fine point on it, the punchline ends up being there's two kinds of intelligence. Yes. So type one is fluid, sort of raw intelligence. It's Darwin's genius was fluid intelligence. It's innovative capacity. It's what made Tom Tom, which is your indefatigable energy, your focus, 
your ability to get better and better, to be the ninja in your particular field, which gets better and better through your 20s It and sounds sexy even as you're saying it. That, that's what I find so horrifying. Totally. That's hustle culture, man. Yeah. Hustle culture rewards that. And, and by the way. And it's, it's been an awesome ride. Oh, and I it's, but it's it. super addictive. Yeah. It's super addictive. It actually works in the same dopamine pathways as you know, methamphetamines and alcohol. And yes, it is my one addiction. Success addiction. Yeah. It's 100%. a killer, and you you know write about it in the book about the success addiction that virtually all entrepreneurs, virtually all strivers have. You can be you know the ace electrician and have a success addiction because we are wired to want to be excellent and mm -hmm. to be admired, which leads you to get better and better and better at what you do, using what we've identified as what psychologists have identified for a long time now as fluid intelligence. Your the structure of your brain lends itself to just incredible energy and focus and to get better and better and better as an individual at solving any problem faster than others. The problem is, this is the problem that led to Darwin's misery and so many others. It peaks in your late 30s or early 40s and then it declines and then it declines faster. And if you try to keep your groove, you're gonna ride that thing to the basement and you're gonna be the man on the plane. You're gonna be Darwin. You're gonna be bitter and unhappy. And most people think they get one curve. That's the bad news. Mm. The good news is that's not your only curve. You have a second curve that comes in behind it, which is not your fluid intelligence, which goes up, peaks, comes down. It's your crystallized intelligence, your wisdom, which doesn't have fast working memory. The innovative capacity is not as good, but it's your ability to identify patterns, to use the information in your environment. It's like having the New York Public Library at your disposal. It takes a while to get the information, like. I can't remember that thing because it's on the fourth floor back in the stacks. I got to send my guy to get it, but it's in there and you can use this information to be a teacher, to be a historian, to have actual wisdom. That's what you get better at through your 40s and 50s and you can stay high in your 60s and 70s and beyond. That's your true success curve as you get older. The key is you got to walk from fluid intelligence over to crystallized intelligence. You got to walk from the star litigator to the managing partner, from the from the innovative startup entrepreneur to the venture capitalist, from the, from the mathematical researcher to the professor. Those are the different curves you gotta go from one to the other. And if you're stuck on the first, and if that's your vision of your own greatness, and you can't be thrown off that, you'll be chasing that for the rest of your life, even though it's just, it's in, it's in the basement, and you can't get it back. So there are some people that can wake themselves up out of the matrix, other people that must be awoken. Mm -hmm. I do fear sometimes that I need to be awoken, uh, but you woke yourself up. I'm so curious. So you're doing your thing. You're very successful. And I don't know, maybe, and I guess we should tell people that you started out as a musician, yeah. a French horn player, mm. nonetheless, very specific. Yes. And very esoteric and made a living as a professional yeah. French horn the player. Barcelona Symphony 31, for a bunch of years. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, exactly right. All right, so you're killing that game, but you realize that you're declining. Do you think that going on that is what allowed you to then consciously step away while it seems like you were still in your prime as the leader, the president of this think tank? I got very lucky. I got very lucky that I failed my first career. And after having a lot of success, I went into early decline. And out of desperation to support my family and to have a future out of my 20s, I had to change gears. Mm. I didn't have a college education. I dropped out of college, you know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs. When I was 19, um, I, and I went on the road as a, as a musician. That's my parents call it the gap, my gap decade, right? Which you can imagine how fun that was for them. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of made a living, kind of made my rent. 
you know, but I was, I was living my best life because I was a young guy. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't go to the dentist for six years at one point, which I'm still paying for. And, but like I've told friends, I, um, I never missed a day without cigarettes. So, you know, you, you figure out what my priorities were at that particular point in my life. And fortunately I gave that up a long time ago, but I was going into decline as a French horn player and things that used to be easy became hard and things that were hard became impossible. And I saw the writing on the wall. I saw a lot of older classical musicians who were deeply alcoholic and unhappy and had been good and now weren't and didn't have the respect of the younger people that were having a harder time making a living. And I thought, look, I'm barely making a living now. I'm ambitious and it's going well. I mean, look, I was in the Barcelona Symphony, so I was making a middle-class living and that's a good orchestra. But I knew that I couldn't keep it up and so I, I had to change. Just by necessity, I had to change. And I went back to college, got my college degree by correspondence. Um, and at 31 left to start my PhD. That, by the way, that was not just an arbitrary thing. It's the family business. My father was a college professor. My grandfather was a college professor. So I knew that business more better than any other. I know how to do a PhD. My father was working on his PhD even when I was a kid. So I saw that whole process that wasn't foreign or exotic to me at all. And I knew what professors do for a living. And I said, okay, I can do that because I know that. I was, ve I was very ashamed. I was just, I felt horrible about myself that I had that I, I had failed at this thing that it was everything to me. I mean, I, there were, I would have just as soon died than to not be a French horn player because there was nothing else. But I didn't die and I couldn't die because I was a married man I was in love with my wife and, and you know, we were gonna have kids and what, what was I gonna do? I mean, you, Were you, you do, honest with her about what you're going through at that point? Yeah, yeah, she knew well, she knew full well. I mean, she knows me, I'm an open, I'm an open book with her. And uh, I mean, she's also smart. And, you know, we, she, she knows me super well in no small part because when we were dating, um, we didn't speak the same language. And we spoke rudimentary amounts of the same language for the entire first year of our marriage. Oh. You got to know each other. You get to know each other in a, in a deep human way when you actually can't talk because you can't lie. I recommend this to everybody. That's really unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you fall in love if you guys weren't speaking the Man, same language? Man, if you language? saw her. <laughs> I was 24. She's a rock and roll singer from Barcelona. She's beautiful. And she's lovely. And she's kind. And she's smart. And weirdly, she liked me. And so, um, and I threw in big time. I moved to Barcelona to try to convince her to marry me without speaking a word of the same language. This is what entrepreneurs do, right? This is the ultimate entrepreneurial experience is to give away your heart and, and to take a chance. That's what young people today, they're so non-entrepreneurial if they're unwilling to fall in love. Because that, I mean, forget the companies, forget the money, forget all the cool stuff that you and I have been able to do professionally. Fall in love, that's entrepreneurship, right? That's the big bad. I have never heard anybody yeah. describe it like that. Well, entrepreneurship. Because of risk taking? Like, yeah, why do you? Entrepreneurship is taking a big risk in, in, in looking for major rewards, for explosive mm. returns. I'm not going to tell you how to denominate those returns. It's faith in resources that you don't already have in hand. These are the characteristics of the entrepreneur. When I was writing a textbook on entrepreneurship, I was looking at that and I'm saying, it's a, it's a big mistake to talk about this in terms of money. We should be talking about this in terms of love because that's the currency of life. 
And when a whole generation of young people are miserable because they're comfortable putting millions of people, people's dollars at risk to start a company, but they're unwilling to go bankrupt in their relationships, they're unwilling to have somebody crush them by breaking up with them, they're just not very entrepreneurial. That's the problem. We have people who are too non-entrepreneurial which is one of the reasons that we have too few people who are in love today, as far as I'm concerned. So that was the thing, man. I took that, I jumped, I did that, I did that. And that, that was actually very good because that gave me a lot of confidence that I could conquer my fear. I could take a risk. I mean, look, it was, it was a very low chance that this was gonna work out and we're gonna learn each other's language and she's gonna realize I'm a hopeless stooge or something, or we're not gonna love each other or something. And we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. We have three adult children. <laughs> it's crazy. incredible. It's amazing. So, so that was, we know each other deeply, deeply, deeply. She knows all of my nonsense because she knows it without the words. You can shade all kinds of truth with, with words. You can't when it's just your heart. You're just a heart to heart. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Now, that's really unexpected. That's very intriguing to me. I would, because I have leaned on language so heavily in my life, in fact, if there's anything, so I once went live for 24 hours as a thing to like to celebrate hitting a certain number on Facebook. I don't even remember now what number, but went live for 24 hours. Oh, and then literally I, <laughs> that morning or the next 
afternoon, whatever, I flew to London. And then uh, I did an event with no microphone and I spoke for nine hours. So at the end of that, something happened to my, my vocal cords and I was having a hard time talking and I could feel like my throat would click. Right. It was so distressing. Go to a, a therapist, they stick a camera down my throat, the whole nine, like trying to figure out what did I do? And I start really worrying, what does my life look like if I can't speak? Yeah. And that was the first time where I was like, whoa, like imagine losing that thing that made you you. Yeah. And I've always been highly verbal. That was always the thing that I could, terrible at math, got horrendous SAT scores, but I'm highly verbal. You're extremely expressive. You're extremely expressive. I will give you that, I'll take that. It's absolutely true. So, yeah. and I thought, oh God, what happens if I lose my voice? So I can't imagine trying to court the woman who is now my wife of yeah. almost 20 years uh -huh. uh, without my voice. That's yeah. interesting. That yeah, no, no, and, and, and me too. Look, I mean, I talk for a living. I literally, I mean, blah, blah, blah. That's what I do for a living. Did it not hit you then that like, oh God, I'm taking away my superpower? Well, in those days, it wasn't my superpower. I was, a, I was a French horn player. Okay, so you guys and, connected over music. Yeah, well, we were at a music festival in France, in Dijon, in France. That's how you met? Yeah, and I was on tour and she was studying and she was studying with a, a teacher, an American teacher there. And we met at this music festival and, and, and we were playing music and that's what she did. And so that, that made it a little bit easier. I mean, right. we were less reliant on, on talking yeah. than, than, than I am today. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so that was, you know, it, it, when I went into the client as a musician, she was right there to be, be helpful. And she gave, me, she gave me the courage. Yeah, was she warm about it or was she? Super warm. She said... I was deeply unhappy because I was in decline. Look, humans are not intended to decline. Decline is hugely painful because happiness comes from progress. Mm. Unhappiness well comes said. from regress. And when you feel that something is harder than it used to be, so it's interesting, you know, you see this, the decline in the fluid intelligence curve we just talked about. If you're really a striver, um, and that's who I'm working with. I'm working with people who want to make the most with their lives. And if you look, if you never do anything with your life, you're not going to know it's over. You're not going to have this big crisis at the end of your life. It's because you never did anything. And I was like, I watched a lot of TV. Awesome. It's like, I can still do that. Don't you think their whole life is a crisis? Not really. No, really? Actually, no, no, not really. Uh, we're no, no, have to no, no. It's, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, well, here's the thing. It depends on what you mean by happiness and what a good life is. You know, I want my life as a striver, but I also recognize that it's not normal in many ways. To and strive? It not to strive to the extent that you have. Mm. But is that what you mean by it's not normal? Yeah, and it, it creates problems. I mean, you, you, you rain hell on yourself yep. when you're actually doing the stuff that you've done. And there's a lot of ways that you could have had a much easier life, a much more relaxing life, a oh, life with greater peace. Frequently. Yeah, for sure. So that's all I mean. It's, an, it's not a very profound point in that way. But when, I, you know, when, I was, when things were going poorly and I was deeply unhappy because I was in a state of regress, my wife said, you're unhappy you just need to quit. And I said, that's insane. I mean, like one can't just walk away, but of course. And she said, yes, you can. Absolutely. You can do anything you want. I said, we'll be poor. She said, we're already poor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, how do you know? You know, it's, it's, you know, multiplying by zero is still zero. And, uh, and so we did, we just, we, we bailed, you know, we went to, we left Barcelona. We moved to Boca Raton, Florida, where nobody knew us. I took a pretty easy teaching job and I started studying by correspondence at night. Nobody knew I was doing it. She had a minimum wage job. She spoke very poor English, had not graduated from high school. Um, and so was learning English and making, you know, six bucks an hour or whatever it was. 
And I was getting paid to teach the French horn while secretly working on my bachelor's degree at night to build my, to, to rebuild the person that I was. And then finished that and went on to, and started my PhD, which is what I really thought I needed to do. And that took me a little, I came here to Los Angeles, as a matter of fact, and studied the Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica. And then I learned a new trade. I learned, I actually learned who I was as a person again for the first time, but it was like, four years of, you know, it was weird. I couldn't, I remember trying to sign a check during that time and I couldn't replicate my own signature. And it turns out that that's actually quite frequent when people are in this period of liminality between phases of their life that their handwriting will change. What? Yeah. 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 It's actually a common occurrence. I didn't know. It's like, I'm trying because to sign a check for the bank. And it's like, I'm sure, sorry, Mr. Like, Brooks, this is not the right signature. Is yeah. it is it because there's a subconscious part of you that's like I'm not that person anymore? It's I don't it's it's not well understood, but there's a the the neurophysiology of a lot of this stuff is we're just starting to understand. There's no doubt something that where these things are connected, where your sense of yourself is somehow connected to to you know these motor skills in a particular way. I couldn't replicate my own signature sufficiently. I got like rejected by the bank for cashing a check into my own account at one point. I'm like my 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 early dementia, I mean, what, early stage something, what's going on here? And it, what it was, was I was in this profound state of liminality, which in retrospect was this f just fertile period. You know, I tell the story in the book is a place that you and I both know as Pacific Northwest guys. Mm. There's a place called Lincoln City in Oregon. That's you're near just north of Newport. And I used to go there because my aunt was uh, the receptionist, the hotel, and she had a, she lived in a trailer near the beach and it was like this bliss. I used to go there and I remember the first time I was trying to fish off the rocks in, in Lincoln City, Oregon. I was catching nothing. This old guy lived in a shack is watching me and he comes up and says, kid, I've been, I've been watching you. You know, today he'd be arrested. But, and, and I said, he said, you're not catching anything, right? I said, no. He says, cause you're doing it wrong. You can't catch any fish unless it's a falling tide. And that's when the tide is going out very quickly, mm. rushing out between the rocks. And I'm like, well, all the fish are gone, right? He says, no, 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 you'll see. It's stirring up the plankton. The fish go crazy. It's happening in 45 minutes. He has his fishing pole. We throw our, we throw our lines in and we're pulling them out by, you know, by the tens. It's unbelievable. And, and afterward, he's feeling sort of philosophical. He lights up a cigarette on the rocks. I'm 11 or something. And he says, hey, kid, you know, during a falling tide, you can only make one mistake. I said, what's that? He said, not having your line in the water. And I have learned this, that the time between the tides of your life, the falling tide of your life looks like you're losing everything. Get your line in the water mm. because that's the most fertile period of your life. So what does it mean to have your line in the water? You must try new things. You must be fully alive. You must try everything you possibly can. You I must need you to define fully alive. To be to to wake up each day and to live that day full of possibility. Not to nurse your wounds, not to waste your time, not to try to do things that you used to do. To be fully alive is to be alive to the new set of experiences that's that's coming across the transom. That's super important because during this time of liminality, there's a, by the way, there's a lot of research on this. This is not just an anecdote about, you know, this kid fishing in Oregon. This is, there's a lot of research that shows that this time between periods in your life, which there's a guy named Bruce Feiler who's, who writes a book about transitions. And he said during these life quakes, you know, if, you're, if your spouse just left you, that's a fertile period for you to mm -hmm. learn new things. If you, you know, you've lost somebody to death, if you've, if you're, if you're going through chemotherapy, for example, this is, and you, and you're very you've afraid just been through a pandemic, for example, for example, if you 
during the pandemic, many people find that despite the fact that they hated it and were insecure and it was horrible, that their lives transformed for the good. Mm. That, in terms of what we're talking about here, the two curves, fluid and crystallized intelligence, that period between the two where you're, you're declining in one and the other's increasing, but you don't know how to get on it or even what it means, that's your most fertile period. That's when things are, can be absolutely magic. They're not going to be fun. You might not be happy, but that's when magic can happen. So tell me about this then, because this happened to you. You've been in periods between that you got, you got, you're successful, but you're miserable. And so you had to change. What was the time between the tides for you? What happened? You have a concept that resonates with me profoundly, which is that suffering is sacred. Mm. You have to do it well though. And I think there's a few key things that you have to recognize. And when you were telling your story about your wife, A, I don't even know who I would be without my wife. And as I think so for a period, my wife and I now, I would say are in very a traditional gender roles, but in the beginning of our marriage, it was very traditional in a way that was profoundly um, transformative. So much of the way that she tried to express herself in the world was through me. Hmm. So she was a stay at home wife, but very shrewd, very sharp and would push me to be better and was beyond supportive when things were not going well for me. And in a very similar vein of like, I don't care if we're poor. I want to see you happy. That's all that matters to me. And so when I was profoundly unhappy, I would come home and I would say, don't ask me about my day. I don't want to think about it. I have to separate myself from that. And so finally it got to the point where she was like, look, this is starting to damage our marriage. And so I'm going to need you to work less, to figure something out, whatever. And so that's when I went in and decided I was going to quit and we were going to move to a small town in Greece and I was wow. going to write again. She's Greek. And, uh, it was, I was going to do that, which made me feel alive. And so that was the refrain. I want to feel alive again. I want to feel alive again. And so I knew what that felt like because I had pursued my art so fervently for years and it made me feel some kind of way. And so I recognized the decline, was able to associate it with, well, you're just trying to get rich. You've made money. It hasn't changed. So there's something here that you've fundamentally misunderstood about the world. And my, I guess, liminal thing had been, it had been going on for a while because when I left film school, and did not understand how to break into the film industry, that was a devastating period. And I would just lay on the floor mm. and I couldn't afford to furnish my apartment. And I would, the, the plenty of room sort of, to lie yeah, down. like hilarity <laughs> was not lost on me. I could feel like that cheap nylon carpet that you get in cheap apartments and it would leave like an imprint on my face. Cause I would just lay on the floor and I'm like, this is so ridiculous. And I started reading about the brain. And right. I don't remember where that insight came from. Maybe something I picked up in college. I don't know. But I was like, I need to learn about how the brain works. And so this is late 90s and brain plasticity is being debated. And it wasn't, there wasn't an answer. Some people were like, yes, it's real. Other people were like, no, it's not. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to act as if it's true because that's so much mm -hmm. more hopeful. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know the Einstein quote back then, but the quote of the most important decision anybody will make is whether they live in a friendly or a hostile universe. And me deciding mm -hmm. that I lived in a world where brain plasticity was real was me saying I live in a friendly universe. Right. 
And so I started trying to get better. And I was teaching at the time. And so I'm teaching film and I start noticing I can make the students' films better if I can make their films better. Because by this point, I believe I have no talent. That's a whole part of the story. So I believe I'm completely talentless. I thought I was born with talent. I clearly was not. I don't know how to break into the industry. I'm going to teach because those that can do and those that can't teach. But I'm reading about the brain, brain plasticity. I'm helping the students make their films better. And I have a question in my mind, which is, well, if I can make their films better, why can't I make my own better? I was like, maybe I could. And so that gives me the hope that I need to be fully alive, to start approaching things with, hey, maybe I just need to get better and I can work on this. And I had read the Tao Te Ching when I was 16, Hmm. which plants some very profound seeds in my mind, which I will now call a growth mindset. But back then, like, I didn't really understand how to put them to use in my life. But I start putting them to use in my life. I start getting better at filmmaking. And you couple that with my wife being just incredibly encouraging, not afraid to be poor, wanting to see me happy. Um, And... And that was when I went in and as I said before we started rolling, I went into my partners and I quit. And I said, look, I can't keep pursuing money anymore. And so I don't know, my version of having my, um, my line in the water was knowing I wanted to feel alive, believing that if I went and did the thing that I wanted to do, that I would get better at it. And that if I got good enough, I couldn't be denied. Right. And so the old, old Steve Martin quote, this would have been... Have been like 28, 29, 29. something. So you're like really that. on your fluid intelligence curve in a big way, but big not way. feeling it. So right. I have struggled my entire life. Have you seen Amadeus? Mm-hmm, for sure. Okay. So Solieri mm-hmm. laments to God, "Why did you make me? Oh my God, you're a musician. This will resonate mm-hmm. with you. Why did you make me just good enough to realize I'll never be as good as Mozart? Mm-hmm. Why couldn't you have made me like just a, another person in the crowd that can appreciate what right. he does. But you had to make me just good enough that I want to be that good yeah. and I realize I never will be. That's how I have felt my entire life. Mm. I've always had friends that were just enough smarter than me that I was like, damn, I'm never gonna be that smart. And so I always tried to find a different lane and in the beginning it was being funny. And so for a long time, I wanted to be a stand-up comic, mm. but it was all self-deprecating because right. I had low self-esteem. Mm. I would just make fun of myself all day, which only reinforced my low self-esteem. For sure. And so while I was very funny, it didn't feel good. And so ultimately end up rejecting that. Um, but yeah, so at the height of my fluid intelligence, I did not feel intelligent. I felt the exact opposite. And you were getting tons of material success, thus helping you to understand later on as you, as you increased in wisdom that the, if, if you take the instrumentality of money and make it your intrinsic focus, you're destined for misery. No doubt. Now, this is an interesting you know, insight that, that we, we can take back to ancient times. But St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265 writes his Summa Theologica, the seminal text of Western philosophy. You know, forget the, just the theology, just Western philosophy. And in it, he talks about this very interesting thing. He says that, that man, mankind, humankind, we'd say today, has four idols. You pursue, everybody pursues one or more of four idols. And he calls them the substitutes for God. Because his supposition Whoa. is that, that we all want God. But God is extremely inconvenient. A lot of one-sided conversations and a ton of rules. So we look Sounds for substitutes right. that have kind of these divine characteristics. The problem is they're 180 degrees off God. They're money, power, pleasure, and fame. Fame, he says, honor which is, has different connotations. I have a son who's a Marine who serves with honor. That's not what we mean. We're talking about admiration, 
envy uh, of other people of you, which is which is people want that, or or just prestige, or maybe fame. You know, some people actually want to be famous, but let's just call it money, power, pleasure, and fame. Everybody, you know, I play this game. What's my idol? And I'll ask people, not what's your actual idol, but what is not your idol? You know, of these four, money, power, pleasure, fame, what's the one that least attracts you, that you could get rid of with total impunity? Mm. You don't care. And then we'll, we'll start eliminating, and we're going to find your idol is the whole thing. Wow. Now, the interesting thing about that is that what he says is not that you'll go to hell if you do that. He says you'll be unhappy if you don't recognize the idol, if you don't recognize the idols in your life. The trouble is the limbic system of your brain, Mother Nature, that tyrant, tells you that you'll actually be happy if you get your idol. And so you chase it and you chase it. You can't quite figure out what you're going to do if you get it. Like you know, Tom's going to get you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. What are you going to do with that money that you would actually like? And you can't quite figure out. Well, yeah, because if you, if you articulate it, you know, if I say you'll buy a yacht, and you're like, I don't, that sounds like kind of a hassle to have a yacht. Maybe it sounds good, but not that good, Right. You, the real reason you want that is because you want admiration, because you want the, the validation of what it represents of you to you. You want a, this transference of social comparison you've always done with other people. You want to actually feel the thing that you felt for others about yourself. That's what the idols do. That's the nasty switcheroo. That's the, that's the despotism of, this, of, of, of mistaking the intrinsic good for the instrumentality. That's why Thomas Aquinas was so astute in what he was talking about here. So when we play this game, and we, we, we see what is actually holding us back. And you experience this. Absolutely, you were chasing the thing, chasing the thing, and chasing the thing, getting more and more and more miserable because you're actually getting closer and closer to your idol and realizing it will not realize one single thing that you needed for your own happiness. It had no intrinsic worth. Look, if there's anything about money, by the way, the research on money is very clear that... <clears throat> It doesn't actually ever bring happiness. It lowers unhappiness, which are processed in different hemispheres of the, of the brain. Happiness and unhappiness are not opposites. They're, not, they're different experiences. And what happens is at low levels, money will lower unhappiness. So when I could finally go to the dentist, I felt better. The trouble is I don't know how to do the sums inside my brain. I just knew I felt better. And we always mistake lower unhappiness for higher happiness. And so mm. early on, you're like, wow, I went from from you know, $15,000 to $20,000 a year, and I felt better. I actually felt better about myself. I was able to, to eliminate some of these sources of, of you know, misery, so I'm happier. And so you get into the pattern early on. You wire your brain when you're a young person working your way up the ladder. More money, feel better. That means more happiness. And you realize that going from $250,000 to $300,000 is not doing it. That because it's not big enough jump, apparently. And so you go and you go and you go and you go and you go, and you're basically just chasing a lure. It's a real tyranny. No doubt. And that's what you experienced. And that's why you were miserable, right? Because you couldn't get there from here. It's interesting. Yes. I put different words to it, and I'm curious to see what you think about this. So I think about it from an evolutionary standpoint. So we have directives in our brain that there is going to be a sense of dis-ease if you don't do certain things. I think that deep and profound unhappiness can come from 
pursuing the wrong thing so that you're right. spending your time doing things that just they rob you of energy instead of giving you energy. But I also think that people end up profoundly unhappy by not doing things that nature wants them to do. Right. And I think one of the things that nature wants us to do, and so just not doing it will be a problem, is work really hard to turn your potential into skill set. Yeah. And so if things come easily to you, even though you're on top of the world and everybody else admires you and wants to be you, that there will be a sense of dis-ease for you right. because you're not working hard. It doesn't feel meritorious. Yeah. Nature has to find a proxy, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Nature wants you to have children, so it makes sure that sex is intensely pleasurable. But that's really just a proxy for have kids. Mm. So that I find really interesting, that, that nature is working in these weird proxies. So people end up like, you think you're supposed to do one thing, chase money, power, fame, whatever. And you're like, why does this suck? But all of those things actually do have utility. Mm. And so the thing with money is, People are always going to pursue it. The thing with fame is people are always going to pursue it. Why? Because it actually has utility. So money, for instance, is more powerful than people think, not less, but it isn't what you've been told. Mm. So it's never what myself and everyone else included is trying to do is feel better about themselves. Right. It won't help with that. It right. cannot touch your self-esteem. And that's like the biggest like mind fuck ever. Your wife won't love you more. Your, your, your children you won't respect you more when yeah. you have more money. Exactly. And more you, troubling. Yes. You won't respect you more. Yes. Which is ultimately the, because other people will. Like people treat me differently because I have some micro fame and, that, and because and I have it's money. actually troubling too. Because when you know somebody is instrumentalizing you, when you know somebody is objectifying you because of this outside characteristic, it makes you profoundly uncomfortable. It's interesting. People hate that. You know, it's the one thing where we will allow people to objectify us. You're well known. You're successful. And people will be nice to you because of that. And deep down, you know that they, 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 they don't love you. And it's not how it plays out in my head. How does it play out in your head? That I have no ability to be vulnerable around them. Oh, I see. For and sure. So but that's the same part of self-objectification. That's the same part of objectification. Mm. You, and and if, when you're objectified, you can't be a full person. There's another interesting thing that might actually apply. You're a creative. You're fundamentally a creative. When you were doing your work, you were thrown off the creative process. Now, why is creativity intensely pleasurable? You get, you've read the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the, the great social psychologist who wrote a book, a very famous book called Flow. F-L-O-W, Flow. And what it talks about is how minutes, how hours turn to minutes of sheer pleasure mm. when you're in this flow state. When you're doing something that you can master, you're, you can, it's not too easy. It, it requires your ability, but you can master it because of your skill. Mm. And you can get into this groove. Creatives must create. If creatives are not creating, they will be miserable because they can't attain a flow state. It's very possible, Tom, that when you were in this part of your career, you needed to create. What do you, you wanted to quit and go to Greece to do creation. You were basically craving that. It's like you had no protein in your diet for a year or something. And it's like, I don't know, I just can't stop thinking about peanut butter. Well, because <laughs> you, you, were, you, were, you were craving this macronutrient in your psyche. And, and you were never getting a flow state. And if you're denied the flow state that uniquely comes to you through creativity, you're going you're gonna to be practically suicidal. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a rough period. That's interesting. I've never thought about it as being intrinsically a reflection of the pleasurability of flow. But you might be right. It's just I feel, I feel alive. That is yeah. the right word. I feel alive when I'm creating. I yeah. am never happier than when I'm creating. It's amazing. People who are fundamentally creatives, look, same thing. You know, when I retired as a CEO and I came back to writing, speaking, and teaching, 
um, I'm a new man. I'm a new man for the past three years. It's extraordinary. You said something a while ago. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to go back to it now. You said you rediscovered yourself. Yeah. What does that mean? Like you need a sense of identity? Is that a core part of this? Like is when you say you rediscovered, is it a self-narrative? It's you, you know who you deeply are as a person. You're acquainted with yourself. You're acquainted with your true self. And just as with people who are around you, you can, you can create a, an identity that's actually not authentic. You can create an identity to yourself that's not authentic. You can be giving yourself a self-narrative that's not true to actually who you are as a person. What does it mean who you are? What so, you're good at? What you love? It generally speaking has to do with being in the zone of what you actually love to do and what you appreciate most in your life when you're in line with your own values, when you're living according to your own values. So Jung would have put it this way. Carl Jung, his definition of his understanding of happiness was that you need to understand your own values, what you value, what you think is proper and correct and moral. And if you know what that is and can articulate it and live according to that, you will be happy. Hmm. If you, do you agree with that? I think it's actually there's a lot of truth to that. Because you, know, you have to figure out what you think, what your model of the world actually is, what you think truth is. And then living in accord with your own values, with your own integrity is, is really critically important because when people live outside that groove, they're, they're never in equilibrium. They're just never, the problem is that they're not comfortable. They're not comfortable in their own skin. And I've noticed this, you know, I was working, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was good being the president of a think tank. I was lucky to be president of a think tank. I believed in the work, but it, it wasn't who I was. And so I was kind of out of my groove for 10 years, 10 and a half years. And when I started going, when I went back to writing and speaking and teaching and doing creative work, I said, oh, it's weird. Is that weird. always who you were? Or was yeah. that because you switched into crystal? No, it's always who I was always a creative. You know, as a kid, I was painting and writing and composing music. And I just always wanted to be, I was, creativity is the most important thing in my life or curiosity and creativity. Are the, are the most important thing that I can, not the most important thing in my life, the most important thing that I can do and when I'm actually happiest. And when I was managing a large workforce, managing a lot of creatives to their best selves, I mean, it was, they had certainly creative moments to it, to be sure, but it wasn't comfortable to me. And when I, my second curve, which was much more crystallized intelligence, is a lot, also a lot more creative. So I was kind of out of equilibrium for a long time during that period as well, which compounds the problem of my declining fluid intelligence, also not being in a creative role, but it's just so much better. I mean, I, I teach at a great university, which I love. I write for a magazine every week about things that I'm really interested in. I get to talk to you about it. This is, well, beats working. So true. For some reason, I was just thinking today, like I was pacing, listening to you, and I was like, I'm technically working right now. Weird. I was like, this is, Cool. It is super cool. And you know, there are people that I've met. It's interesting. You know, I talk to lawyers who don't feel like they're working. Oh. I talk to you know, a guy who's putting talk in cabinets in my house and, and he's super into putting in cabinets. Mm. He loves making cabinets. He was talking about all the details and he's so proud of his work. And I say, do you, do you, do you like your work? And he said, it doesn't feel like work. You know, I went on a fishing expedition, deep sea fishing expedition with my son, Carlos. We, we, he loves to fish and we go fishing. And, uh, and the guy says, every morning I wake up and, and he says, today I'm going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and so bad. this is what we all need to find. I mean, we need to, each person, because we have a, the blessing of living in an economy where you can do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the problem is that people chase these extrinsic lures, the money, power, pleasure, and fame, and they get out of the groove of what they're supposed to do. And then they wonder why they're unhappy. I want to go back to Jung and this idea of values. So as you were saying it, I was like, yes, part of me agrees. But then as I run the thought experiment, sort of check it against other things, um, other people to see if it holds up. I feel like right now we're living through maybe a weird moment or maybe mm. a completely normal moment in time where people are using their values to cudgel each other. Yeah. And it doesn't, when I look at them, it makes me deeply uncomfortable and does not resonate with how I think about values. Yeah. So is this just a bastardization of the word value or do the people that, that on either side of the aisle that are just viciously going after each other. Right. Do they really believe what they're saying? Because it seems like a super dark energy. Yeah. So, so this is a, a variation on the theme. They're, they, these, these are people's true values. But in a fear equilibrium, where we're culturally in a polarity of fear, fear and love are, are cognitive and philosophical opposites. So fear is the master emotion. It occupies a part of the limbic system called the amygdala. It actually uses more brain tissue than any other basic emotion because it's what keeps you alive. If it were not for fear, you would have been, you know, your lineage would have died out hundreds of thousands of years ago by being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, which weirdly you were not afraid of. Right. And so, so fear is really important. Love is the opposite of fear. Love will actually neutralize inappropriate fear or excessive fear. Fear will. I did not see those opposites coming. Yeah, because we think of, of love and hatred, but hatred is downstream yeah. from fear. Hatred is always a byproduct of fear, downstream from fear. So what happens is... I love the way you say that, like ultra profound shit. Like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I've never thought of that before. And so, and so when, when, when people come to me and they have too much fear, the prescription is surround it with more love. Hmm. Neutralize it with greater amounts of love. It's pH and it's, it's alkaline and acid. If you, on the other hand, if you're looking for more love and you don't have enough love in your life, I'm going to ask you questions about what you're afraid of because I'm going to try to work on your fear. God damn. Yeah. And so this is, and this is how we actually deal with you. If you have a fear problem, I'm going to work on the love dimension. If you have a love problem, I'm going to work on the fear dimension. Okay. So now when all the, the way this, all of this comes together, ultimately in, in our lives is we have to figure out what the problem is and what we have in our society today is a fear polarity in our politics and our ideology and our culture and what that meant the way that manifests in our values is we don't use our values which are beautiful and good as a gift we use them as a weapon mm. now think how counter uh, uh, effective that is how 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 destructive that actually is but when you're in a fear polarity you're actually through fear you're going to use your own values antagonistically toward other people, which is incredibly uh, ineffective. You're using coercion instead of persuasion. The point of values and sharing your values is to persuade each other. That's the fruit of the enlightenment, but it's also just you know, the basis of human nature. If you cudgel other people with your, with your, with your values and use them as a weapon, there's 0% chance you're going to convince anybody of anything, but you're trying to use force. Zero. So the problem that we have is we could move from a fear to a love polarity, then people would go back to using their values as a gift. We might, we will disagree. We will disagree, but disagreement is beautiful. It's the competition of ideas, which is fundamental to a free society. You and your wife, there are things you'll never agree on and you will die married and in love. That's a, you can live in permanent, harmony with somebody with whom you disagree but only if you have a love polarity in your life and you use your values which are in contrast to the other person's values as a gift and not as a weapon what we see today in politics on campuses in media 
is that people are trying to kill each other with their values. You know, you're a traitor. Well, you're a racist. I mean, the, the things that people are throwing at each other is basically never going to convince anybody of anything because mm. there's too much fear. Damn. So what are people afraid of? People are afraid. We, we go through these, these sort of sine waves of these cultural polarities a lot. And emotional contagion is a very profound thing. Facts. Yeah. And so emotional contagion is one in which it's uh, the, the culture actually starts to become infested. So when, when I was a kid, for example, growing up in the Pacific Northwest um, in the 1970s, there was deep fear of serial killers, cults. I remember It's a fear-based well. polarity of, of cults. And, and what that, that led to was unbelievable um, bitterness in politics where left and right, just as bad as today or almost as bad as it is today, um, between the Democrats and the Republicans, between the conservatives and the liberals. And it all came from the fear that had infected, you know, from in the, in the aftermath of Vietnam and, you know, the, the culture wars that were going on and, the, and the, the, the Cold War. These were very, it was a very fear-based society on the basis of this. There was a break in that, but then, you know, it comes back again is the whole thing. The, the, the opportunity for us as social entrepreneurs, the opportunity for us is to, is to change the polarity is to encourage people to live by love, to have the courage of actually living by love in a fear culture. And, and that's, you know, you can fire people up with that. It's... What does it mean? How do you do that? You basically, to make people commit to only using their values as, as a gift, to being around people who are different than they are, to listen to different points of view, to go to people that, that with whom they would ordinarily not be in communion and say, I want you to know I love you. To say those incredibly transgressive words. This is the most transgressive message in all of human history is love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the gospel of St. Matthew. That changed life on earth, actually, is to say that led to, that concept led to the Western Enlightenment, which basically said we don't have to use force. We can actually live by persuasion. That was a profound difference in the, in the culture that led to the progress that would create an economy where Tom can become a successful entrepreneur, quite frankly. One thing leads to another, but we're in regress right now. The fear polarity in our culture is leading us, we're, we're devolving culturally mm. because of this. So if we really want a better world, I mean, I know I sound like a, a, just like an unrepentant hippie of which I've been credibly accused, <laughs> that we need, we need love. We need to stand up to the people on our own side, whatever that side is, and say, I refuse to hate. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm, I'm done, man. I'm done. I love you. <laughs> it's interesting. So I can't articulate it that cogently because I probably haven't spent as much time thinking about it as you, but I've come to a similar conclusion. So what I've been saying, so I never thought that I would ever utter a word that had anything to do with the culture war. And then I started to really get freaked out by watching people run in opposite directions, like just right. seemingly as fast as they can. Cause you're not super political, right? I'm not political in the slightest. Yeah. I don't find politics interesting. It seems right. to encourage people to be divisive. Right. And so my thing is to your earlier point about you can be married to somebody and love them deeply and passionately and disagree about things. So in business, as is true in marriage, if you both think alike, one of you is not necessary. And the, I heard mm. the same thing about, so mm. when, when you really ask why are there two parties, which I'd never stopped to contemplate, that 
so Ray Dalio says there are only so many human personalities and that's why history repeats over and over and over. I thought, ah, oh, it's really interesting yeah. that there are only so many personality types and that there are basically two big buckets that you can break people into people that are, we'll call it compassion dominant and people who are conscientious dominant. Mm. So not that they're exclusively either, but people who are like, you can't leave anybody behind. And then people over here are like, you have to be responsible for yourself. Right. So it's the, sort of the liberal conservative yeah, exactly. dichotomy that we often think about popularly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that cool all makes sense. And then in business, I watched this play out. So I had two partners previously and there were times where they didn't see eye to eye. And I remember the contribution I felt most strongly that I had brought to the dynamic was I'm on the outside going, you're both extraordinary. So value each other for being different, right. like value that friction. Right. And that in the friction lies the magic. And that right. either one of you would be a problem on your own. But when you have that countervailing force, it actually creates something really incredible, but only if you respect the other person's view. And so then I started going, okay, politically, it's the same thing. Whether you're conservative or liberal, it's like you have to respect the friction. You have to understand that either one, if we hmm. only had one, spirals into madness. And it is only in the friction. I won't even say the balance. It's in the friction yeah, between yeah. the two that you sharpen your ideas. Yeah. Spoken Persuasion. like a great entrepreneur. Look, the, the, the proverbs, proverbs say that iron sharpens iron. I was giving a talk to the assembled members of the Republican Party on the House and the Senate side. The members of the House and the members of the Senate, all Republicans at a retreat some years ago. And I said, I asked, how many of you wish we lived in a one-party state? No hands and no hearts. Let's be honest. I said, how many of you are grateful that we live in a democracy that has multiple parties or at least two? Every hand goes up. I said, you just told me you're grateful for the Democratic Party. Axiomatically. I wasn't trying to be tricky, but it's actually true. Yeah. If you're grateful that, you can, that, there, that we live in a country where we can actually have disagreement without a knock in the night and a jackbooted thug, you are by axiom, by construction, grateful for the people who disagree with you. Look, the, the Yankees are grateful for the Red Sox. They don't want to blow up the Red Sox bus on the way to the game. That's not how competition works. Competition requires collaboration. It requires rules. It requires respect. You know, I, you know, I like the Red Sox more than the Yankees, but I want the Yankees to show up with their best pitching and beat them fair and square. I don't want them to forfeit. That's actually, there's no good in that. There's no good in that whatsoever. And remembering this is really, really critical. You know, the whole idea that we're in right now, and this is how the fear-based polarity breaks down the iron sharpens iron, how it breaks down the whole idea of competition. It basically says that do whatever you have to because, you know, war, I mean, the, the, you know, scratch out the eyes, you know, a knee to the groin. I don't actually care what happens in politics because, the biggest threat to this country is my neighbor who votes for the other party. That is simple insanity. That is not to mention the fact that that is factually incorrect. Mm. You know, it's actually possible that Vladimir Putin is going to bring this country back together again. <laughs> it's actually possible that somebody who's, people are, you know, looking at like, oh, that's non-democratic. That's what that thing means. It's actually not the Democrats. Right. It's something else. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that that threat brings people together that a common enemy actually brings people together. The, great, the, the, the greatest pity that I can imagine is that the coronavirus epidemic didn't make us love oh, each man, other for more. For a minute, though, didn't it feel like it was going to? It sure did. It sure did, oh, except God. that we politicized like, that oh, because of the amazing. deep fear in our country yeah. and the fact that we have leaders that are encouraging us to kill each other, rhetorically, 
that are encouraging us for their own, the outrage industrial complex in media and politics is trying to drive us apart. The because, outrage industrial complex, I like that. <laughs> it's, it's an old plan, Eisenhower's military industrial mm. complex. But the outrage industrial complex, remember, you know, everybody's watching us now. When you hate, somebody's profiting and not you. Bottom line. Well said. Yeah. No, man, that's exactly how it feels. Yeah. And it's crazy and it's interesting. So I'm definitely not an unrepentant hippie or credibly accused uh, of being a hippie. I'm super weirded out by that stuff. But the only thing I can think is that we have to race to the middle and love each other. Yes. Like that's it. Yeah. And love has been. Or even is, not in the middle. Even really? just like stay in, the, stay in the sides and still love each other. It's like keep your opinions. Absolutely. You know, I I'm want, not saying get rid of your opinions. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, isn't it the party that's closest to the middle always gets elected? Nah, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, we've been kind of oscillating back and forth between between political positions that are actually not representative of the middle. And this is a different kind of a sort of a, a, a an, it's a different political dynamic, which you're kind of going rail to rail. And you're going rail to rail because, you know, you basically because you can have bashing into yeah, yeah. the rail on each yeah, side. For, yeah. for example, you can say that, you know, given the fact that we, we go between parties might mean because people are so close to the center mm -hmm. or it might be because you have two blocks that Warring are incredibly strong yeah. that are relatively equal in power, but very, very different than one another. So this is the key. The key is basically either one can be fine. You can have very, I mean, I was at dinner with a couple, an older couple a couple of weeks ago, and she, the, the, the wife is super liberal, like pro-choice and the Democrats all the way. And the husband is just, he's just as right wing as they get. I mean, just very pro-life on abortion. I mean, all of these issues that down the line, what you'd expect from conservatives and liberals. And they're, they've been, they've been married for 50 years and they, and it's like, and, and privately it says, gosh, I admire her so much. She's just so wonderful and the whole wow. thing. And, and it reminded me that this is the key thing that you can be in permanent disagreement, but in love mm -hmm. equilibrium, we just have to be people that can do that. You know, we've been convinced somehow by people who are making money and getting power and followers and their jollies from our fighting that we have to, that we, that we can't be around people who disagree with us. Yeah. That's insanity. That's, a, that's, a, that's quite frankly a mistake. And you know, and you would not be a successful entrepreneur if that had been the case where everybody has to agree. Because as you quite astutely point out, um, you know, if you surround yourself with people just like you, you're not gonna succeed. I love the idea of Lincoln's a team of rivals. Exactly right. Getting people that think differently, getting people that will push you. Like in, in business, I will just tell you right now, if you don't have people that are willing to tell you when you're wrong, you are fucked. At least, so I, going back to my own insecurities, I don't see myself as smart enough to just run the company by decree. So I've had to create a structure where people are not afraid to speak to power. Totally. And because I have not invested anything in my self-esteem around being right, I don't mind. Like, hey, just tell me where I'm wrong. I'm so like obsessed with getting the result. I don't care if it's my idea. I just need it to be the right idea. But man, it's really hard to get people in, in a company dynamic where ultimately there is an imbalance of power. And of course, I could fire them at any right. second, but they could leave at any second, which is right. equally distressing for me, except multiplied. They only have, you know, two people, my wife and I, who co-founded the company to worry about. We have all 50 of them, uh, you know, to worry about. So, And if you're a tyrant uh, and they leave, you're cooked. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, because it's hard to find good people. And the secret to success actually is a good team. It actually is good people. It's interesting. You know, I do this test for my students. I teach this class called Leadership and Happiness at the Harvard Business School. And I, I take them through a battery of personality and happiness tests over the course of the semester. And the one they like best 
is the positive affect, negative affect battery. And what that is, is, is your positive and negative affect emotion levels. And what they learn is that you can be both very positive and negative. You can be a, a high happiness and a high unhappiness person mm. because you're a high affect person. And you can also be a, a low unhappiness person, but a low expression of happiness person. You're a low affect person. You can be high positive, low negative. That's the cheerleader. You can be low positive and high negative. That's the poet. Low low is the judge. And high high is you, is the mad scientist. Right. And what you need and what I show is actually, you know, use, using the, you know, the research on this, that you got to figure out which one you are and you must surround yourself with what you're not. Mm. The biggest predictor of success on teams and entrepreneurial startups or even established companies is making sure that the CEO is not surrounding herself or himself with people who have the same affect profile. And there's a role for everybody. There's a role for the poets. There's a role for the judges. It's interesting. It's a guy who, you know, it was actually a woman in my class this year. And she's like, I don't know if I can be a successful business leader. She's a doctor um, and she's getting her MBA, super high, super striver, super striver. She says, I don't know, you know, if I get, I've got this judge profile, you know, this low, low affect profile. I don't, I don't know. I said, what did you do for a living before this? She says, I was a surgeon. I said, that's perfect. I do not want a high affect surgeon. You know, somebody who opens me up and says, oh my God. And so that's there's a role nice. for everybody. And we mm. actually need that iron sharpening iron on our teams. And we need to value it. We need to love it. We need to actually resist the tendency to want to surround ourselves with people like us. And this is exactly what we're not doing in our politics. And our country is in decline as a result. Mm. I also think we need to have a healthy distrust of ourselves. You're not going to like those words, but I am skeptical enough of myself, yeah. meaning that I know I'm high, high, that I can get very excited about right. something. I know that emotions make dots feel like they connect that don't actually connect. And so yeah. it's like, I have to make sure that I seek that disconfirming evidence that I don't think, well, I feel it. And therefore we all need to get behind this idea. Right. I'm like, no, no, no. I tell people, put on your cynical hat. Like, tell me where's the problem. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And you know, you, if you, you had Adam Grant on the show, no, Adam but Grant teaches it at Wharton at, you know, at Penn as social psychologist. Fantastic. His newest book is called think again which is exactly the case that you're making. Mm. He makes the case that if you really want to be successful, don't trust you. And it doesn't mean that you can never trust you, but you know, look for the, the evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Look for ways that where your confirmation bias is probably leading you astray. Don't look to feel good about yourself because you were right on everything. Look, you're wrong on lots of stuff. You just don't know on what stuff. <laughs> yeah. So help, have people around you who can, and it's probably not that fun to have somebody around you who every single day says you're wrong on every single thing. You got to find some sort of balance for Pete's sake. And if you're the boss, you're probably right on most things. But do, if, you, if you're wrong, you should want to know first, not last, if you want to be successful. Yeah. It's crazy to me. How, and I won't say it's crazy. I understand it. When you are right, it feels good. Even now, when I know better, it still feels good when I was right. Yeah. I just don't invest in that. I don't encourage that in myself. I'm like, yo, you've got to be careful with that. Yeah. But when people would actually rather like they get angry when people point out a flaw in the idea i'm like what are you doing yeah. like that you are headed towards an iceberg and you're actively discouraging people from letting you know yeah it's ego it's threat crazy. ego threat is really deep for people who are living their heads because they don't want people to think they're incompetent the failure's real totally the failure's coming no no but they will they'll they'll resist tooth and nail it's just it's like you're trying to cut off my finger 
by telling me my opinion was wrong. Wow. It's unbelievable how the evolution has led us to this place. You want to be right. You want to be right because you feel like an almost physical need to be right. Being contradicted um, is, is socially painful. And there's a, um, the same part of the brain, the anterior cingulate of the brain, processes both physical and social pain. We have a very practical brain, a very parsimonious brain and, you know, stimulating the same part of the brain. So it's like, you know, being being told you're wrong and being embarrassed for mm. something that you were wrong feels like somebody punching you in the face oh, oh, to your brain, at least. And so you'll resist that because you're trying to protect yourself. It's deeply suboptimal and dangerous. You're right. Yeah. If I could just in fact, my success is because I'm not afraid to be embarrassed. I never like it. It right. sucks every time. <laughs> But a willingness to be embarrassed is how I have learned. Mm. Yeah, no, and uh, humility, of course, is a great, is one of the great secrets of happiness, too. That's interesting. Why? Uh, yeah, humility is, in, is in, because it gives you peace. Hmm. Humility allows you to relax. Because you're not trying to protect something? Yeah, you're not actually trying to protect your fortune. You're not standing in front of your stash of gold all the time, you know, walking back and forth with a shotgun. You know, you, <laughs> so you, true. you could basically just walk away and take it. You know, you can, you can relax into the reality of your fallibility mm. for, for once. And a lot of people never quite, and I'm sure that people are listening to our words right now. And some people are going like, actually, I think that might be true. You know, I've never actually let down my guard, you know, and once you actually get into it's, it's actually, it's a very interesting rhetorical habit when you're having a conversation with your spouse or your friend or your any lock interlocutor of any kind, and they make a good point, say, huh, that's a really good point. I think I might be wrong. I think I'm, I think I might be wrong. Now that's that really hard to do. Secret to marriage, though. It man. is. Oh man, God! If you can do that, it's amazing. It is amazing. Now, part of the problem is that you often don't think you're wrong. <laughs> that is part of the problem. Yeah, and you're so you correct. know, being conciliatory in a way that that you know, saying I think I'm wrong when you actually aren't, or or mm. or where the truth is, you just don't know. You just don't know. I mean, a lot of um, marital discord comes because, you know, somebody's saying you got to do something differently and you literally don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. I mean, there are probably times when you were miserable. I'm just going to guess in your work and you were going, you were working 80, 100 hours a week and you're going in a million different directions and your wife's saying, you need to be happy. You need to let this go. You need to do less. And you're like, I don't know what to do less. I, I don't know how to do less. And that's really tough because that's giving you directions that you can't quite take. Mm. And a lot of marital discord actually comes down to that is directions you don't know how to follow. That's really interesting. Yeah. The, that is money. And I think that when people are confused, they are not necessarily at their worst, but it's not a great place to be. No. The confused mind says, no, if you have a defense mechanism against being wrong, then you're going to throw that up. You've got self-delusion in the mix. So, yeah, it can be a pretty potent cocktail. Yeah. But one thing that served my wife and I extraordinarily well is when the other person is like, oh, man, you might actually be right. I think that I'm wrong. Or is like, you know what? You're absolutely right. I completely apologize. We reward them. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like, thank you. That really mm-hmm. means something. And so it isn't, see, I told you, you finally recognized it. It's, right. oh my God, like, thank yeah. you. That's well, really in, incredible. In good relationships, that's true. In loving relationships, that's true. Mm-hmm. But when, when you're in the, and the there's, a, there's a phenomenon in, in the work on, on conflict called motive attribution asymmetry. Motive attribution asymmetry that's actually, fancy. yeah, it, it explains, it's actually a, a complicated 
set of words for a pretty simple idea, which is what we do to get tenure in my business. <laughs> and the, the whole idea of motive attribution asymmetry is that I know my motive, which is love, but I attribute hatred to you. And almost all um, of irreconcilable conflicts, whether it's you know the Balkans or the Palestinians and Israelis or the Rwandan genocide or almost any divorce, comes down to this mode of attribution asymmetry, which is a mistake because two sides to a conflict. I'm loving, but you're a bitch. Yeah, and if they both think that, one is wrong or both because you can't be both motivated by hatred and love at the same time. Mm. Now, the secret to, to when couples are in this dynamic, according to John Gottman, who's you know the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation, he's got this thing called the Gottman Marriage Laboratory in, in Seattle. Is he the one that came <laughs> up with the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Yes, exactly okay. right, of contempt and sarcasm, yep. and et cetera, et cetera, avoidance, et cetera, yeah. And he also talks about the five to one list where you have to say five loving things mm. for every, that's the magic number where a, a marriage can thrive with criticism as long as there's five acts or expressions of love so for simple. every criticism. No, no, I mean, it's just, it's this, he's, he's fantastic at these particular heuristics. But he notices that, you know, if they can, he can get couples to start talking to each other truly to say, I'm angry right now, but don't forget, I'm madly in love with you. Then that that diffuses that that short circuits the mode of attribution and symmetry. But when you don't say that, the other person actually does think that you hate, even though and both sides think that the other side hates as as a result of that. And this is where a lot of the problems actually come in 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 the way that we're you know we become defensive because the other person hates us and we're trying to defend ourselves. You defend yourself when somebody's actually attacking you through hatred. Mm -hmm. But if you can get past the the communication problem where neither side actually understands the other, then suddenly you can say, when she's right, she's right, man. When she's right, she's right. Because <laughs> she loves me. She actually does love me. She's not nice to me all the time, but she actually loves me. And that's how I feel about my wife, by the way. At the end of the day, she loves me. Yeah. yeah. My wife introduced that to our marriage. She said, when we're in the middle of a fight, she will always ask herself, does he love me? And she said, as long as the answer is yes, then we navigate through. And if yeah. the answer is ever no, we have a totally different problem. Yes. And I was like, damn, that's really yeah. smart. And yeah. so she actually bought these coins that said love on them. And if we were ever in the midst of a big fight, she said she would hand it to me or I could hand it to her. And so we each carried them with us. And we only had to do it once. And it was so profoundly like disarming she pulled the love token out and slid it across and I was like, fuck yeah. And we had agreed when we were emotionally sober that if, if somebody pulls that out, no matter what, you stop arguing. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. And just doing that once gave us like the emotional memory to be like the next yeah. time we're in a fight to just remind ourselves, wait, this person loves me. I love them. Like, let's. It doesn't mean that you sweep things under the rug because we've learned that is not a winning strategy. Right. Like you have to keep discussing, right. arguing sometimes until you actually get to resolution. But doing it with a constant internal reminder that this person loves me and I love them. Yeah. It's pretty transformative. It is. And it's actually very important also to, of course, to be together. Um, it's damaging to be apart too much. Mm. And this is one of the big mistakes that a lot of young people make is, you know, commuter marriages tend to be very difficult to maintain. Is that like a thing now? For sure. For really? sure. Living in different cities. Yeah, what? a lot of couples live in different cities. For sure. The other part that's... Even uh, sleeping in separate bedrooms, every alarm bell I have would go off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you're just not together enough, like I'm on the road all the time. I'm on a book mm. tour. You know, I'm doing all kinds of cool stuff and it's really, really fun. But I understand that I can't do this forever. I need to be... And I need my wife to hear my snoring, man. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Proximity, there's no yeah. substitute for proximity. For sure. There's yeah. nothing like it. This is one of the reasons that the coronavirus epidemic was so profoundly uh, deleterious to our mental health. There's, we have a mental health crisis just rolling across the United States right now. Ordinarily, about 9.5% of the population is exhibiting symptoms of clinical depression. Right now, it's about 28%. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that has everything to do with loneliness in the wake of the coronavirus epidemic. Whoa. Many people are much lonelier than they think because of the isolation from other people. Mm. You know, social media is the junk food of what you need, which is actual human love with real contact, eye contact and touch. Yeah. It's sort of interesting. You know, the, this is so much better, this conversation, because we're actually in the same room. This is so much better than if we were talking on Zoom. Profoundly oh different because we've got the mind meld. Yes. We've gone through 50 topics <laughs> already. We couldn't have done it on Zoom. And the yeah. reason is because we wouldn't have established a link of oxytocin, which is the hormone that links people together through eye contact. Mm. We wouldn't be... And, and, and if you're not physically proximate to build this, this, this neuromodulator link with the person who's closest to you in your life on a regular enough basis, well be unto you. Look out. It's going to be trouble. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. You said in an interview at some point that Zoom is really making us lonely. Yeah. For a while, I thought it was pretty rad, if yeah. I'm really honest. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, because I'm an introvert. So I was like, hey, working from home, this is amazing. Yeah, right. And then about, I don't know, probably 18, 19 months in, I started to feel isolated yeah. and alone. And I've got a loving wife. I see my sister every week. Like I was like, man, if I'm feeling it, then I know people are really getting rocked Extroverts like me, man. I was climbing the walls. Got a lot of work done. Got a whole book written. <laughs> but I was sincerely less happy. Yeah. Sincerely. And the weirdest thing about it is, I mean, look, Zoom is great. This technology is really great. Mm. But it's also done even bad when we don't need to use it. I am too productive. I am too productive. We're in Los Angeles. Fantastic. I could talk to you. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to give up a speech by Zoom and then walk into a speech in person. Mm. And, you know, last Friday I gave a speech in Madrid followed by a speech in Dallas. I was that's in crazy. Dallas. You know, that's too productive. You know, I'm actually a work machine and I need to be very disciplined to because I want to do more. I want more, 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 more. We're more machines. We're wired for more. And, and what Zoom is given us the ability to do is to stack productivity on top of productivity on top of productivity. And we need to sort that out. Mm. That's really interesting because I'm such a fiend for efficiency. Yeah. I am not prone to seeing the problem, but I actually understand what you mean. There's no, like there used to be down moments where I was traveling from one thing to another, even if it was small, like in an Uber or something like that. But now when you have literal where you have to say, Hey guys, I'm so sorry. I just need to go pee because there's no break. No just break. Zoom, 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 it's zoom. Oof. bad it's bad for you it's bad for your brain yeah no i hate and, it and try yeah, to avoid I, it at all i costs. hate it too i hate it too and and thank god the world is more or less open again mm. and let's hope that we can keep it that way because our happiness requires it our love requires it yeah agreed yeah all right really fast i want to go back yeah. to i was super freaked out when i heard so i knew in japan they were having trouble that people were i think it's called the hikikomori or something like that these guys that live in their house they just play video games they don't want to engage with real women and, but I didn't realize that people are 30% less likely now to get married, to have sex. And I was like, what? Yeah. That's startling. So if we know that this is a fear of being crushed, how do we begin to claw our way back out of this? 
The, and what the, caused it? Well, what there, this is the work of Jean Twenge, who's a social psychologist at San Diego State University down the road from here. And she's shown all of these numbers that were 30 percentage points less likely to date than, so than we were when, you know, that when I was in my teens and 20s. And the, I mean, like, that's what, what I cared about. You know, it was love. That's what I wanted was love. That was the most interesting thing ever. It was absolutely captured my attention. And so he talks about the reasons for this. And there are a bunch of different reasons for this. There's a sort of safetyism culture where we brought up our kids to feel afraid of other people, which is weird because, you know, growing up where you and I in the Pacific Northwest, when, when you did, or especially when I did in the 1970s, was way more dangerous. Mm. There was more crime. There was more drugs. And, then, and, and yet we were largely unsupervised as yeah. kids, right? I and mean, we were probably running around Puyallup. Oh, with, my friend. Yeah. I, I could ride my bike like four miles away unsupervised yeah. at 10. Your mom is like, don't come home before dinner yeah, <laughs> or I mean, whatever, right? Yeah. If, if I was in the neighborhood, she would just whistle. But I remember my mom, without a helmet on, I would ride my bike three or four miles away to a bike track. Right. And like do BMX jumps and stuff like that. Yeah. All unsupervised, no adults, nothing. And, and you know, this is no small part of your success, quite frankly. Yeah. Good like for you your mom. Need, you need to be letting your kids put themselves in right. danger. Now, how I survived my childhood, I will never totally. know. Totally. It was more dangerous. But, it unambiguously was more dangerous. But you were less fearful as yeah. an entrepreneur in both life, business, and love. That's, and you, know, you have to figure out how to deal with shit. Yeah, for sure. Like you go to the bike track and there are bullies there, but there's no parents. Yeah. So what you nobody's do? adjudicating your disputes, yep. et cetera. So you weren't asking for safe spaces on campuses. <laughs> no. And you weren't afraid to ask your wife out. That's step number one. The second thing is the really uh, disastrous consequences of life on social media. Mm. Social media has made it much, much scarier for us to fail much scarier, the social comparison to be much worse than it is in the past. So people have lower self-esteem and more social fear because of what social media has brought to them. Mm. And the last, which is a really interesting phenomenon, is the research on, on internet dating or social me or uh, uh, dating apps on how that's actually lowered our ability to love each other. And that comes down to a, a big problem in the algorithm, actually, believe it or not. They, huh. we, we look when, with uh, dating apps, they match us in, in, in ways that where we're too compatible. Um, love and interest what? come from people who are compatible, sort of, but not that much. Real love is complementary, not compatible. That's interesting. Yeah, and so there's a lot of research that shows this. So even biologically, there's a famous set of experiments in the 1990s where these, uh, these researchers, they would have guys, you know, guys in college, uh, wear a t-shirt. Oh God, and I love this study. You know this study, right? Yeah. And they, weren't, they didn't shower for two days, and they wore the t-shirt, and they took the t-shirts off, and they put them in cardboard boxes and punched holes in the boxes, and women who didn't know them, they would have to sniff the box. Gross, right? And then they would say on the basis of this, which of these guys is most attractive on the basis of the smell of their sweaty t-shirts? And it turns out that, that uniformly, they found most attractive the guys who are most different than they were in terms of their immune systems. You need a big repertoire of, it's very important that your parents not be sibs mm. for you to have a strong immune system. We all know that inbreeding and you know, incest actually leads to children who have, are, are, are prone to all sorts of preventable diseases mm. because their immune systems tend to be weak. You need people who are very different, have a different immunological profile from each other, and you can tell that with your olfactory sense. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, a, that's a, an example biologically of a, of, a, of a greater psychological principle too, which is you find attractive people who have the qualities that you don't have. Now, it creates conflict too. I get it. But what do we match on in and, and, and your, your dating profile? It's like Republican, 
it's like, uh, <laughs> and so this ideological conformity and it's, it's, you know, I said this, I was telling my kids, you know, my kids are, you know, 24, 22 and 19 and, uh, tell my 24 year old, my son, he's getting married this summer. Wow. And, uh, and I was telling him about this. I said, it's basically <clears throat> you're inadvertently with a dating app, which he never used, but all his friends did. You're inadvertently trying to date your sibling. Oh, and my, yeah. son, my son says, not hot. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, that's not ideal. Yeah. So all of this adds up, you know, social fear, safetyism in the way you were raised and too much compatibility. Mm. One, two, three, 30 points down. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, man, I, I love modernity. Yeah. I love it. But I, in the same way that I'm skeptical about myself and the ways that I think I am skeptical about modernity and some of the things that it's introduced. Yeah. It's very interesting because I am the, I'm a Gen Xer. So for me, it was like, I didn't get, I was married before dating apps came about. Thank God. Right. Thank God. I am a me too waiting to happen because my wife it was a school for adults, but yeah. I was the teacher and she was the student. <laughs> but like when you really break same it down, age, more or less, uh, I'm three years older. Yeah. Same age, more or less. Yeah. So it was me at my best. And there's this whole thing around whoever's the center of attention. Women tend to find more attractive. Yeah. And so I was the center of attention because I'm literally at the front of the class yeah. teaching. And there was like a power imbalance that yeah. she found attractive. Yeah. It's like, maybe she shouldn't, maybe that's bad. Like maybe now well, people this is would be social really annoyed, construction but, that says uh, that this shouldn't happen. But, and I understand that because there is plenty of abuse, but you can't rule out an entire class of behavior because of cases of, because mm -hmm. of some cases of abuse. Look, 17, this year, 17% of people have met their spouse at work. Bad enough that everybody's on Zoom. You're not going to find your spouse on a Zoom screen. Very, very unlikely. <laughs> but on, on top of that, if you're making rules saying no love, no love at work. Then you've you've overcorrected. As a as a company owner, though, I'm super paranoid. I got it. It's like oh, I got God. it. Yeah, but I'm the same, right? I want people to be able to find each other, and so yeah. we've always made it in every company I've had a policy that as long as you tell HR or whatever, right. it's all good. Because damn, like how else are you meeting people? Love is awesome. Yes, love is the best. You know, seventy percent of people who have a best friend at work love their jobs. Yeah, fifty eight percent of people who have a best friend at work wouldn't leave for more pay. This is the life in life at the friendship level. And now you add now, on the other hand, 25% of, rela of romantic relationships at work have involved one person who was married. And that's bad. Ooh, that's hey, bad. Right. Hi. And so look, but, but nobody thinks that there's no balance in here. Nobody mm. thinks that there's not going to be abuses when there's something good. But to rule it out because of the liability, this is an overcorrection that is, I think that's indicative of the, the way that we see love in our society that leads to these patterns that are lowering our happiness. We need love. Love is happiness is love. Full stop. Arthur Brooks, that feels like the right place to stop. That was fucking on the money, man. Thank Where can you. people find you? Arthurbrooks.com or, you know, at the Greyhound station. I don't know. They, I'm, um, I do my research at Harvard University and I write for The Atlantic. And I write a column on the science of happiness every Thursday morning called How to Build a Life and, and all the stuff and the podcast and the books and anybody, anything anybody wants, I offer up with love and you can find it on my website, arthurbrooks.com. I love it. Guys, the book is Strength to Strength. Buy it, read it. It 
it made me emotional. It was that good. I don't care what age you are. This is information that you want to have at your fingertips. And speaking of something that you want to have at your fingertips, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.